the Satellite Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Bethay, here to talk to you about the book of Daniel, one of my all-time favorites. We recently began a study in the book of Daniel in our Sunday school class, and I got the privilege of teaching the first chapter, so I wanted to share some observations I made from that chapter on how Daniel deals with being a follower of God in a pagan culture, and how he uses his favor with men for God's glory. So just to give you a very, very quick background on the book of Daniel, at the time that Daniel's being written, Israel is a split kingdom. King Solomon has died, and the kingdom is divided as a judgment on Solomon's house for a pattern of idolatry. So in 722, the ten northern tribes are taken captivity by the king of Samaria. Then Nebuchadnezzar invades Jerusalem a few different times. The time that happens in 605 is the one that is recorded in the book of Daniel. And he's not able to finish the conquest in this 605 invasion because his father dies and he has to rush back to Babylon. So when Daniel starts, the book starts with Nebuchadnezzar taking over Jerusalem, taking people captive, and taking the captives back to Babylon in 605 B.C. So that's the backdrop. So Daniel chapter 1 kind of details Nebuchadnezzar's plan for assimilating young youths like Daniel that had intelligence, good looks, and a lot of promise into Babylonian culture. And the entire first chapter covers their attempts at assimilating Daniel and the three friends that are mentioned here, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, into the Babylonian court to eventually serve King Nebuchadnezzar. So it's a three-year program, a three-year process of teaching them Babylonian science, culture, religion, customs, etc. And more than likely, Daniel and his friends were somewhere between ages 15 and 17 when this is going on. So remember that when you hear about some of the stuff they're doing and saying to these adults that control their lives, it's pretty bold for teenagers to be doing and saying some things they were doing. So the first thing the Babylonian culture did was attack their identity by trying to change their names. So Daniel, whose name meant God is my judge, has has his name changed to Belteshazzar, which means Bel, who is one of their deities. Either Bel, protect the king, or Prince of Bel. There's some dispute on the translation there. Hananiah, which means Yahweh is gracious, had his name changed to Shadrach, which means command of Aku. Mishael, whose name means who is like the Lord, had his name changed to Meshach, which means who is with Aku is. And Azariah, whose name means Yahweh is my helper, had his name changed to Abednego, which means servant of Nego. So again, the very first attack is to change their identities by changing what they're called and replacing the names of their deity, Yahweh, with the names of their own foreign pagan gods. So one of those questions led me to ask was, what are some ways in which we allow our culture to change our identity as Christians? And think about that. A few of the obvious ways that came to mind was political affiliations, which is something I've talked about a lot, but I really feel like that in American culture, it's reached a point where we base your level of sanctification with your voting record. Whereas it's not enough to simply be a Bible-believing, God-fearing, Jesus-loving Christian. You must also vote for certain candidates and hold certain political beliefs to truly, truly be in the club, so to speak. At the other end of the spectrum, you have progressive Christianity, which is an attempt to mesh the gospel with modern cultural norms and ideas, essentially saying that Christianity needs to evolve with the culture and adopt things in the culture 
that would make us more appealing, more attractive to the lost in our current era. It's essentially a form of ever-evolving Christianity which tries to stray away from absolutes and emphasizes love over dogmatic truth, essentially elevating love to being the highest good in that our focus should be on doing whatever is loving and will make people comfortable as opposed to as opposed to telling people what is actually traditionally held to be true. So you have these two extremes in our current culture. One is putting the gospel inside of a box and saying that all these things must be present in addition to the gospel. And if they are not all present, then your belief in Jesus is not as anchored or as genuine. Whereas the other is trying to erode any clear boundaries for the gospel and saying the gospel is ever evolving. As our culture evolves, it evolves where we are essentially getting to a place where we have no absolute truth related to Christian doctrine, or at least very, very little. So one's trying to expand what is considered Christian truth. The other is trying to shrink which is what is considered Christian truth. And both are claiming to be the way in which we should model Christ to our culture at this time. So again, those are just two identities that I see our culture attempting to place on Christians. It's like either Christian American nationalism or progressive Christianity. And I would love to hear y'all's thoughts on other identities that you feel like our culture tries to impose on Christians right now. So, back to Daniel. He's a teenage boy whose country has been under siege. He's been taken captive to a foreign land where he's being taught a new culture, a new language, all kinds of new things in an attempt to indoctrinate him to this culture and prepare him for service to this king who has savagely murdered some of the nobles in his royal, in the royal family and taken his kingdom hostage. Although it was a captivity very, very clearly prophesied by God through the prophet Jeremiah years before it happened. Now, one of the perks of being put in this position is that he was given access to the best education probably that the world had to offer at this time and was also given the opportunity to eat the choicest foods that came from the king's own table. So whatever the king's chef made for him, he shared with the group that included Daniel and his friends. Now, you're familiar with the story. You know that Daniel and his friends take issue with this saying, this food is food that we do not feel comfortable eating for probably a few different reasons. One is that the food was more than likely not kosher, meaning it probably did not meet the Jewish dietary restrictions that were given in the Old Testament. Another reason is that a lot of the food is probably sacrificed to idols, meaning that a lot of the animals, when they were killed, are probably killed on altars in worship to the idols of Babylon. And so for Daniel and his friends, they probably feel like partaking in this food where these animals were clearly dedicated to the worship of these foreign gods would be a form of idolatry. So, for a couple different reasons, Daniel and his friends refused. What makes this refusal especially crazy is you think about the fact that Daniel's city was under siege. And if you know anything about sieges in this time in history, a siege usually started by you cutting off food and water from the city that the people are living in. Meaning that Daniel's probably coming from a place where food was scarce, if not completely absent. And he was probably hungry and or on the verge of starvation for the entire length of the siege. So he goes from that to not only having access to abundance of food, but the best food available in this country. And Daniel is saying no to that because he does not feel it would glorify God to partake. That's crazy. Add to that the fact that Daniel's a teenage boy, and we all know that teenage boys eat like they have four stomachs. So just very practically, when you think about what Daniel's saying no to, 
This was a very, very big deal. And what's interesting also is the way Daniel goes about it. We are told that Daniel has favor with men throughout this chapter. And Daniel uses that favor to go to the, the officials placed in charge of all the captives and tell him, look, we do not want to eat this food. We don't feel comfortable. It violates our conscience. To which the response is, as many of you know, Ashpenaz, I believe his name is, tells him, look, man, the king's investing a lot in you. If he looks over and sees you looking sickly, I will lose my head. And that's not just an idle statement. We know that these kings in Babylon were really gruesome in how they punished their enemies and even their servants. Supposedly, when King Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jehoiakim, he killed Jehoiakim's sons in front of him and then gouged out his eyes so that the last thing that he would remember was seeing his sons murdered, which is awful. So there's some real danger here for Ashpenaz when he's saying, look, um, if y'all don't look healthy, I'm going to be in trouble. You think about also the potential danger for Daniel as a foreigner in this country to say, hey, I'm not really vibing with y'all's customs. That was a dangerous situation to put himself in. And what I really see when I look at this passage is Daniel's attitude on assimilation. Assimilation is about lordship much more so than it's about behavior. It's not just about what you do. It's about the state of your heart. So what's interesting here is in the New Testament, we have Paul who challenges us to be all things to all people. Talking about how to the weak I became weak, to win the weak, saying I took on traditions and social norms in different cultures because that broke down barriers that allowed me access to the gospel. But then you have Romans 12 where we are told to be in the world but not of the world. And so the question I asked the class, and we had a really good discussion on this, is how do we reconcile these? How do you become all things to all people without compromising and being of the world? And in the situation of Daniel, he rejects some of the norms and mores of the culture and in his mind partake in their idolatry, but he does go along with receiving the education and having his name changed. So he manages to thread this needle saying, there are certain things that I understand are part of this culture that I need to submit to and that will help me best glorify God. Getting this world-class education helps me best glorify God. They can change my name. But they cannot change my identity. So I will go along with being called this pagan name. But what's interesting is what Daniel did not do. He did not withdraw or isolate himself from the culture. So he didn't ask to be removed from this really favored position, receiving the best education to what it to offer, even though it was inundated with carnal and secular ideology. But instead, he recognized the privilege of his position and how God allowed him to be in this position. And he engaged the culture head on. While still not compromising his beliefs, he threaded this needle the perfectly. He threaded this needle in the perfect way. Now, what I think is the issue here is when we submit to our culture in the wrong way, it's because we are seeking the approval of man over the approval of God. This is the issue with the two extremes I talked about before. One is seeking the approval of man through power, trying to create power in the political system to change the hearts of people, which doesn't work. The other is seeking the approval of man by trying to get the culture to love them. And they're both equally impotent. When we submit to our culture out of fear of man, a desire for man's praise, or the desire for power, we are sinning in the state of our heart. And at that point, the action is inconsequential because the heart is in a state of idolatry. So as the story goes, Daniel goes to Ashpenaz, and having been granted immense favor with the people of Babylon, Daniel petitions him and says, look, man, give us 10 days to eat fruits and vegetables. Let's see how we do. And miraculously... 
At the end of the 10 days, Daniel and his friends look healthier than any of the other youths there. So what's interesting here is that Daniel following his convictions and obeying what he felt God had placed in his heart to do led to fruit. A strong, healthy body and a strong relationship he had formed with the people of Babylon and an increased and improved standing before men. However, none of those things that God blessed him with were the reason he did it. He did it because he was seeking to honor God, period and point blank. Now, we know Daniel maintained these strong convictions all the way through his time serving in Babylon. But what's interesting is that in chapter 6, these people who loved Daniel have now turned on him from obeying those exact same convictions. And so I asked the question to our class, what does this teach us about the favor that God grants us with men? In chapter 1, Daniel's convictions lead to great favor with men. He's blessed because of it and rewarded. While in chapter 6, they try to kill him for his same convictions. How do we reconcile these? To me, it's this simple. We need to remember that it is nearly impossible to accomplish the will of God with the full favor of men. If you are pursuing God, your favor with men will wax and wane. It will go up and down. And Romans 8 makes it clear that this is because the heart of man is naturally opposed to the will of God. Like that is the natural state of the heart to be opposed to the will of God. So God does remove his favor from obedient people, but favor isn't necessarily indicated by success or position. Daniel serves in a high position of authority for the next 50 plus years, and his position allowed him direct access to the world's most powerful rulers, but he did not always do so with the highest amount of favor. And if you look through the Old Testament, we see this in other people. Joseph, his favor with men, up and down. Potiphar loved him. Then Potiphar had him thrown in jail. Then he finds favor in jail. David, he is the most favored person in all of Israel during the times he's winning wars for Saul. And then Saul's trying to hunt him and kill him. <laughs> and even the apostle Paul, who spent great portions of his ministry in chains because preaching the gospel offended people. He was seen as a threat to the social stability in a lot of the places he was going to preach. So he ends up in chains, loved by some people and some leaders, and hated by others to the point they tried to kill him multiple times. So here's the punchline. When it comes to assimilation, looking at ourselves and our culture, we have to ask, as we bow to certain cultural norms, what are our motives? Are we doing so to glorify God or to please man? And Daniel models how to strike the balance between being in the world but not being of the world and being all things to all people. He submits to certain social norms like the name change in education, but he draws the line at engaging at a social norm or cultural custom that he feels would be idolatrous. And if you are seeking to glorify God with your life, or if you're listening to this podcast, I'm sure that's probably one of your life goals, favor with men is going to come and go if you are truly seeking out to be obedient to God and to glorify him. And we cannot allow the favor of man to dictate whether or not we are obedient to God. And we do need to understand that even something as simple as a diet can be a tremendous witness when it is done with the 
desire to glorify God. Amen. That's it for this week. This has been Dave Bethay for the Satellite Podcast. Thank you for listening.